wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Welcome to Bleeding Daylight. Please remember to share this episode with others and connect with Bleeding Daylight on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. You can follow Bleeding Daylight wherever you listen to podcasts. It's free and it'll ensure you never miss an episode. My guest today faced trauma from the day she was born. Childhood left her with post-traumatic stress disorder. How do you come back from such a harsh upbringing? We'll find out soon. Today's guest had a difficult upbringing before beginning a life transformation in her early 20s. That was quite a number of years ago and she's come a long way since then. She now helps others break free from their past to become the person they were meant to be. She co-founded Damascus Experience, which we'll explore a little later, and co-hosts the podcast On the Road to Damascus. It's my great honour to introduce you to Yvonne Rempel. Yvonne, welcome to Bleeding Daylight. Hi, thanks for having me. I mentioned that your upbringing was difficult, but that probably doesn't even come close to describing your early years. Help me understand what life was like for you as a child. Well, my early years were difficult. I have, my psychologist has said PTSD because I had numerous traumatic experiences as a young child. So my upbringing was very unusual. My mother When the day that I was born, my mother didn't want me. My stepfather named me. My grandmother gave me my middle name. And then they sent me home with my mom. So (laughs) that was a pretty rough start to, uh, to a beginning that should have been such a joyous occasion. And then I found that, you know, by the time I was age five, that there was a way to behave so that you didn't get repercussions. So you weren't beaten so that you weren't called names so that those moments that happened, you know, you just learned to protect yourself as a child really early on so that you didn't have to encounter that type of abuse. So yeah, my childhood was was pretty rough and and very different than most people. You're talking about postnatal depression, perhaps at the start, But obviously, it's more than that. If this has gone on and and you've had to learn to behave in a certain way. So was that the start of it or was it just that your mother didn't want children at all? No, actually, my mom went on to have four more children. My mom had me under certain circumstances that were not great. And those circumstances have actually been a secret even to this day. So I don't really know the reason and having to live with the unknown and not understanding why these things were happening over and over and over again really played a part in my childhood. You know, when when I tell my own kids when they were younger, hey, there's a reason why you're doing this. So this is how we adjust. This is how we correct. There was never any direction on how to correct something because I never knew what I did. That makes life very difficult. Was that kind of abuse coming both from your mum and your stepdad, or was this just something that your mum played out in your life in those early years? My mum was the biggest factor. My stepdad was actually only in my life for another three years after I was born. 
And then there was an another stepdad that came into my life at 12 years old. So the majority of the time was just my mom, me, and I had uh, two siblings at the time. So the abuse was predominantly me and her. And when she would get frustrated with the other kids, I already knew enough to step in and direct it at me so that they didn't have to suffer those consequences because they didn't know what they did wrong. You know, you're a child and you accidentally drop something or you accidentally break something or it's an accident. You clean it up and you move on. But the consequences is being slapped in the face or thrown across the room or locked in a bedroom with no food. Those types of consequences, you know, you you never understand them because when you have friends and they tell you the things that happen in their home, we don't understand it. So my mind just never wrapped around why those things were happening. I know that you're someone who feels very deeply, and it seems that this is something that started at a young age because you had the courage to step in and take punishment that wasn't yours even at that early age to protect the rest of the family. Do you recognize that as something that is outstanding for a child of that age? Yes, I do. I didn't realize that at the time. To me, that was a normal behavior. This is what you do when you have siblings. You protect them at at all costs. And then you don't realize it until later on when you start having your own family and you realize children shouldn't have to protect each other from their parents. This, This should be the safe place for them. So, you know, when people tell me stories of my childhood and how I would do certain things, the most of the key word is that I was adaptable to every situation that I was in because I was protecting those around me and I was trying to protect myself. When did you start to realize, you mentioned talking to your friends, you realized that that wasn't the same situation for them at home. So when did you start to realize that what you were experiencing was not normal? I started experiencing that when our child family services started showing up at my school. Probably about grade one or grade two, uh, they started arriving at, at the school and they started talking to me. The only thing with that is that every time they came and they talked to me, we moved and we switched schools. Every time there was an incident and my mom got caught, we moved. So it became very difficult for an organization that's supposed to protect you. Can They can't protect you if they can't find you. And so that became a reoccurring theme, right, where we went into running and hiding so that nobody else knew what was happening. So there was shame that was coming out of what was happening, but then also a lack of understanding that was happening. And at the same time, this is the age where most of us start to form friendships that are going to last, if not forever, for at least a number of years where we can feel that security outside the family at least. And you were even being robbed of this. Yeah, I I didn't have friends and Having friends was very difficult for me. I wasn't allowed to do things that most kids were, you know, on top of making sure that my brother and sisters were taken care of. You know, I took care of them. You know, when they came home from school, I made their home, I did their homework with them. I made sure they were bathed. I cleaned the house. I did the laundry. So, in essence, by the time I was seven years old, I was raising two other children. The, the mothering instinct, that should have been something that I gotten when I had my first child, actually kicked in for me at seven years old. 
And you're in those very early years. As life progresses, you come to that stage of adolescence, of trying to find your own way. How did it play out for you in those sorts of years? We talk about the destruction of a childhood, you know, when there's abuse and there's trauma and there's things like that, but but there's structure, right? So I knew my part I played. I knew those moments that I needed to be there. I knew all of that. And so at 17, I was kicked out of the house and I went on a very destructive path because I didn't have no options. I had no structure. I didn't know who I was other than, you know, raising my brothers and sisters, you know, other than trying to uh, please my mother. When I left home and I was out in the world, I got into some things that, you know, those are the kinds of things that you don't really want people to get into, you know, drugs and drinking. And I try to find my worth and I try to find my place, you know, with other people, with friends, with men. You know, it, it was a very destructive time in my life. And how was that separation from you and your siblings? You've spent all these years where you're trying to protect them and you're effectively being their mum in absence of your own mother doing that task. How did it feel when you were wrenched away from them? It was actually very difficult. Um, So when I left my home, I never went back. And I spent many, many years not talking to my mother. And, And to this day, I still don't talk to her. But my siblings, it took them at least a good seven to eight years to understand that I was allowed to leave and that the emotions they felt when I left, it was not my fault. And so we had to come to an understanding that I was not their mom, but they were extremely devastated and they blamed me for everything that happened after I left because I was supposed to be there to protect them. So again, they're they're feeling not quite sure where to turn and and blaming you for it. And I've heard this before of people who have got out of a situation or been kicked out of home and yet the story that's being told back at home is is quite different. And again, it, it's part of that manipulation. So from what you've understood, from what your siblings have told you, that manipulation continued even against you at that stage. Yeah, and it still continues to this day from my understanding. But it definitely in the first couple years when I left, there was rules like you're not allowed to say my name. All the pictures in the house of me were removed. So there was a manipulation that was happening and I was made out to be the bad guy for everything that was happening because I was the one who left. And all this time you're trying to find your sense of self, your sense of identity and trying to at least please someone. And this is, as you've said, leading you down destructive paths. When did you know that you had hit rock bottom? I knew I hit rock bottom uh, when I actually woke up in a place that I didn't know after a couple of days that I didn't remember. This epiphany kind of struck me going, this is not the life that I fought my entire life you know, going through my life, I had this intuition, this guiding, you know, where I would go to school, but I would get good grades because one day I was going to go to university and I was going to protect other kids in the world. Or one day I was going to do something good with my life because out of this bad, there had to be something good coming out of it. And so 
when I, when I was growing up, I was very, I was guided by this deep intuition, you know, of right or wrong and how I should move and, and where I should go and, and the person I wanted to be. And when I fell out of that structure, I really, really lost that. And I lost that intuition because I started doing drinking and I started doing drugs to numb all the pain that came crashing down out of that structure. So when I hit that rock bottom, I sat there and I said, this was not how this was supposed to go. I didn't live my whole life fighting for something to end up going down the the wrong path that I wanted to go. We can put up with an awful lot in life if there is just a little bit of hope. And it sounds like that intuition that you had, there was a sense of hope in that. Do you believe at that stage you had lost that hope? Or was there a moment within that sense of rock bottom that there was still hope that you could turn things around? No, I I definitely lost that hope. I lost a vision of a future. And and that's really what it what it was, you know, when I was living at home, even going through those moments of abuse or things that shouldn't have been happening, there was still a hope that one day I was going to leave. One day I was going to do better. One day I'd do better by my own self. But when you hit that rock bottom, you just, you lose all of that sense of hope. You lose yourself. You lose your vision for your future. And when you don't have that to really, you know, cling on to, what's the point of just trying to to do anything with your life? So you've woken up in a place that you don't know. There's days missing in your memory that you just don't know what has happened. Where do you move from there? Well, it actually, it took me a little while to move from that point. You know, my deep sense of being needed and worth, you know, was still wrapped up in people. So I would do anything to do to please people because it re- I really needed that in my life. That was my, that was my sole identity was being worthy. And so, you know, it didn't really turn around until I actually got pregnant with my first child at the age of 18. Was it then that you realized I'm now responsible for another life? I need to clean up. What caused you to start to, to turn things around? Because you'd been responsible for children before. They weren't yours. They, they were your siblings. But you still spiraled out of control. What was it that was different this time? You know, honestly, there wasn't much of a difference. I, I guess I was really in shock, number one, because I shouldn't have gotten pregnant. And number two, it was never in my plan to have kids because I never, ever want any children in the world to ever experience what I experienced. So in my plan that I had in my life, I was never going to have children, never. So when I got pregnant and I was like, oh, well, I knew instantly, I knew I needed to be responsible. I knew I wanted to do different for this child. And so I needed to start going the right direction and start cleaning up my life enough that I could help this child have better upbringing than I did. So you're still in your late teens. How do you start to form a new life when you've really come from this destructive past and you're trying to find a better way forward? How do you start to make that happen? At first, I tried to do it on my own. I tried to put in rules. I tried to put in structure. So I tried to really build a structure in my life again, right? Because it was the time that I was, even though I wasn't thriving, 
it was a time where there was structure and I kind of knew who I was. So I started putting this structure in place. But when I put this structure in place, I had a lot of baggage, I realized, that came with it. And there was a lot of things that have never been dealt with in my life. And so here I am at 18, you know, I shortly turned 19 right after. I have my boyfriend who's sitting beside me, the, the father of our child. You know, we're sitting in this apartment and we're like, now what do we do? You know, how do we move forward? Because this was never in the plan for either one of us. How do we move forward? And so at the time, we were living a couple provinces away from uh, our family. And so we moved back closer to his side of the family. Learning that there is families that live very differently than you. I remember I walked in when I met his family and I went, so you guys sit at the table to eat supper together? You guys talk to each other? That's a real thing? How come pots and plant pans are not flying at each other when you're arguing? Like, there's another way to live? I started realizing that the way that I grew up was not normal and that there was other people who experienced life vastly different than I did, which I kind of had a little bit of understanding, but now I'm looking through different eyes. And so I started looking at other people around me and other families around me going, how do you do that? And what I did is I started imitating them and how they lived life because I liked the way they were doing it. And some of this hope is now starting to return because you can see that it is possible to live in a different way. You said you started with structure, but obviously that's not going to take you all the way. What else happened in your life that was going to start making things turn around for you? I started learning that there is people who want to be in your life not to take things from you. And what I mean by that is that there's people who want to be in your life in a relationship without needing to have a a transaction of some kind of relationship with you. And that was really started when my, so my boyfriend, he's now my husband, but at the time he had an encounter with God and he started going back to church and he would take our son with him at six months old. And he said, do you want to come to church with me? And I said, nope, I've never been to church in my life. I'm pretty sure it's the weirdest thing in the world. They're going to know I'm weird, so I'm not going to go. He said, can I go with our son? Would that be okay? And I said, okay, that's good. I'll have Sunday mornings to myself. You go to church. So he started doing that. And then he started going to church and then going to his mom and dad's house for lunch after. And then I was like, well, why am I being all alone? sitting here. I want to have lunch over there. So then what we did is that I would go with him to his mom and dad's before he went to church. And then I would stay in their house until they were back from church so that I can have lunch with them. So I started doing this, this weird kind of dipping my toe in. Something's different. I don't really understand it. It's going to blow my structure that I carefully put in place. And then one day my father-in-law said to me, you know, I know that you don't like to go with us to church because you don't know anybody. But I'm a long distance trucker. If I come off the road, I don't really know anybody. Would you go to church with me on the days that I'm off the road? And I'm thinking in my head, church once every four weeks. Okay, well, that's the price I'll pay so that I can hang out with everyone because I really didn't want to be alone. And then I started going to church 
you know, people say that they have these encounters the moment they walk through the door. And I tell you, from the moment I walked through the door, I had an encounter where God spoke to me. And I don't think from that moment I was ever the same. What do you feel God was saying to you in that moment when you walked through the doors of that church that you resisted so much? (laughs) What was this message that God was giving to you? The message the pastor was speaking that day was on forgiveness. The reason I never wanted to walk into the church is because I didn't feel like I belonged. I felt like there was a lot of things I did that I didn't deserve to be one of those Christian people who sat in a pew on Sunday, right? I lived a hard life. I did things that, you know, people would be appalled by. And I was like, they can, there, there's no way that they would accept me. You know, I'm a lost cause. I'm one of those people that they talk to outside the church. But to actually be in a church, that was, I was like, no. And I sat down for my very first Sunday and the pastor was preaching on forgiveness and how Jesus atoned for everyone's sin and how Jesus forgave everyone for what they did. And I was like, who is this person who would forgive me who I have never known in my life? And he would just forgive me. That doesn't make sense because that doesn't line up with anything I knew in my entire life. Forgiveness is an interesting thing, and you're starting to get this message, and you're starting to realize, I I need to respond to this in some way, and I want to explore that too. But I am interested, what was more difficult for you? Was it accepting the fact that there was a God who was prepared to forgive everything, forgive everything that you had done, or was it actually starting to forgive some of the other people that had brought trauma into your life? Where do you think that tussle was for you? You know, the tussle actually was more that there was a God who loved me unconditionally and there was nothing I needed to do to earn it. And that was the hardest thing I had to to reconcile in my life because love for me came at a cost in everything in my life up to that moment. Being loved meant being abused by my mom. Being loved meant having to be the mom to my brothers and sisters. Being loved meant having to go a different direction in my life with my boyfriend. You know, so there was so many different things. Love cost something to me. It is was it was a something that has been in my life for many years. So when somebody told me that God loved me and there was zero cost to that, I spent a good chunk of time reading the Bible, not to find out who God was, but to prove that there is no way that somebody loves you without a cost. There are still many people today who would say that there still is a cost, that we still have to live for God's approval and we have to work so hard at it. And yet the the message that I'm sure you found in those scriptures, in the Bible as you were reading it, is that no, there's nothing we can do that is going to earn us any more forgiveness. You know, somebody who's ever read the Bible, it was a little bit shocking uh, when when you open it up and you read it and you're like, okay, so I'm going to find all of this. It's a big book. You're going to find something, right? People disagree about the Bible all the time. They argue theology. And every time I read it, every time I opened it up, and every time I looked at it, it was like God was telling me, there's nothing you can do, Yvonne. There's nothing you can do in your life that would change my mind. And you don't have to earn it. You don't have to be somebody to earn what I'm freely giving you. 
And so reconciling that in my life and just accepting it was the biggest step I had to do in the process of healing in forgiving other people. How long did it take for you to make a decision to accept all of this from that first time when you walked through the doors and you're confronted with this message about forgiveness? Was that the moment for you or did you continue to wrestle with this for a while until you said, yes, I'm ready to accept this? For me, I accepted Jesus probably two weeks after I went to church, but I accepted it because I wanted to be part of the community. And then I was baptized three months later because, you know, reading the Bible, I went, people get baptized, so I'm going to do that also. And then it actually took quite a few years to fully comprehend what it meant to just live in his presence and just to live with his unconditional love. And all through that time, like all those years that I wrestled with this and all those years, he was showing me in so many different ways how he loved me and that he wasn't requiring me to do anything in return for it. And that must have been an enormous wrestle because you've been conditioned from the day you were born that this is not how life is. And yet there comes this powerful message of transformation that you finally start to accept and start to understand more and more what it's about. What what did that do for your life, for your family, for your husband, for your child? Well, I had a couple, couple of really radical moments that really changed my life. Um, and so one of them with my husband, you know, when you bring a lot of baggage into your marriage for both parties, we really needed some counseling, you know, so after being married for quite a few years, and I remember sitting in the counseling room with him and there was two things my counselor said to me. Number one, he said, Yvonne, I would never be married to you because I could never make you happy. And I realized that I viewed my husband as the knight in shining armor to save me from my terrible life that I lived because that was the fantasy that I escaped from when I was a child. And that's how I viewed him as the person who would save me. And I put all my hopes and dreams on him, which was, you know, very unhealthy and very damaging to our relationship. And when he said that, I realized that my happiness didn't come from him. It came from me. And that I had to be responsible for making my own self happy. And then the second thing for my own children, and I I remember this so clearly, it was three o'clock in the morning. We just, we had a campfire the night before and at three o'clock in the morning, I was woken up and I could hear God was telling me, I want to talk to you. And so I go outside. It's a beautiful summer day in Canada, right? It's summer night in Canada. It's so dark. The stars are out. I go by the fire. The embers are still glowing. And he said to me, Yvonne, I want you to train up your children. And I didn't know what that meant. And I had to spend the time looking at what that meant and finding people who understood what that meant. But when I dedicated training up my children, as God asked me, what I found was that he redeemed my childhood by allowing me to be the mom that my mom never could be. He redeemed my childhood in allowing me to relive it with my own children. And so when I submitted to allowing God to love me, I learned that I could love people in a way that I didn't know was possible. 
I want to take a slight detour here because you've mentioned a number of times that God has spoken to you. You mentioned when you first walked into the church, there was that experience of hearing him through the words of the pastor who was preaching on forgiveness. And now you're, you've been sitting around a fire and you believe God is telling you to train up your children. There will be people listening at the moment who say, well, I've never heard God talk. Explain a little of that to us. How do you hear God talk to you? What I learned was, and this is many, many years later, um, that hearing God comes in many different forms. And when I say I hear God, I have never, I've heard his audible voice one time in my life. But when I say that I heard him, I'm talking about this really deep intuition that guides you in life. You know, that, that those intuition, those moments when you're standing at a crossroads in life and everything in your gut is telling you to go one direction. For me, I have crazy feelings and my feelings, and we call it being a feeler. And for anybody else who doesn't know what that means, it's called being an empath. And so what it is, is that my feelings guide me in my life. I'll feel empathy towards somebody, or I'll feel sad sitting beside somebody because they're sad. So really, I had this deep intuition from very, very early on in my life, and I realized that it was some something that really guided me. So when I realized that there was language to it, and it was actually very biblical, that, you know, being guided by God, I started putting language to something that I never knew existed. And I realized that God actually talks to me all the time. I just didn't know it. And so I started really discovering what that looked like. How much of a comfort was it for you to start to realize that even way back in those early days, when you were talking then about having that sense of intuition, that sense of feeling, and and that understanding that it was God knocking on the door all the way back then? For me, when I took a soul care class, so I spent a good 10 years of my life, you know, when I, you know, just really quieted myself, closed my mouth, allowed allowed God to love me, heal me, and just be a really good wife and mom as best as possible and learn how to do that. I did counseling and I did, you know, lots of psychologists and I did a class called soul care. And in the soul care class, I remember it was a class on forgiveness and we had to forgive things in my life. And one of the moments was, where was Jesus in your life? And up until then, I was like, he was not really in my life. I never, I always pictured him as this, you know, spirit that always sat beside me when I was sad, you know, somebody who was there, but not there. And for me, though, up until then, you know, like I could accept love, I could trust him, I could move forward. But a, a lot of the healing needed to come from is why weren't you there, God? Why weren't you there to protect me? Why weren't you there when things were going wrong? And as I sat in my class, somebody said to me, but Yvonne, he was there with you. And all of a sudden, it was like God took me back to the parts of my life that I could remember. And he goes, I was there. I was the neighbor that got you and your sister out of a storm and called the police so that you can go home. I was the police officer that picked you up instead of going home with somebody you should never have gone home with. I was the neighbor who made sure that you had food in your fridge and who took care of you. And I started realizing that God was not just this spiritual guide 
in the back part of my life, he was the hands and feet on earth in people who were there to minister to me. I just didn't know it. One more thing I'm interested in, as you say that there's this intuition, this sense of feeling, we know that our feelings can be deceptive. How do you draw the line between what you know is God speaking to you through those feelings and what are just the normal everyday feelings that we all have, which are so often self-centered? That's a that's a great question. I uh, I actually do a lot of teaching on being a feeler um, because we tend to be guided by our feelings. What I do know and everything that I've learned is that when people who are feelers or guided highly by their feelings, we are a disservice to the world when we are not healthy because we act out of our own filters and our own unhealthiness and our own emotions. So for me, when I realized that I was a feeler, one of the things I needed to know was how to be healthy because I could not feel anything from God. I was no good if I couldn't figure out my own emotions inside of me. So when I when I went through all of my healing, right? I mean, a good chunk of it, we still heal to this day. But when I went through the biggest chunk of my healing, I realized that that really stopped a flow of feeling what God felt for people on earth. And so to stay in that over my emotions it's daily meditation. It's daily sitting with him. It's daily reading of the Bible. It's keeping him in the forefront of everything that I do so that my emotions don't creep in and when he's trying to speak to me. I mentioned in the introduction that these days you're actually helping others. And part of that is Damascus experience. Tell me about that. Damascus experience was a promise that God gave me 12 years ago. I went to a conference called Catalyst, and I had uh, this moment in the evening where somebody was speaking, and they were talking about that God gave him a promise. And then he said, I just feel like there's other people who you know, God's giving a promise to. And that was one of those moments where I had this deep sense of feeling, this intuition, and God said to me, one day you're going to do what he is doing. And in my mind, I was like, oh, I'm going to stand on a stage and I'm going to talk to people. And God's like, you're going to help people. Out of your story, you're going to help people. Twelve years later, I finally, you know, after many times of healing, learning about my identity, you know, really fine-tuning what God was trying to say and do it from a place of health, I realized Damascus experience was what he was trying to get me to build. And that was allowing people to really encounter the presence of God in their life, especially in those moments where they feel hopeless, where they don't know him, you know, where they are standing at a crossroads. We all have Damascus moments in our lives, and those are the moments that build our faith and our history with God for us to continue on our journey of life. And so we facilitate experiences through coaching and consulting, uh, Epoch Coaching and Consulting, and we're actually developed another course where we're going to help with the royal priesthood walking in the authority of Christ. And what that is, is it's equipping people to continue on their journey and not being held up by the world. 
And on top of Damascus Experience, you have a podcast, which I imagine is along the same lines as Damascus Experience, especially seeing it's called On the Road to Damascus. Tell me what sorts of things you are talking about in that podcast. You know, we actually have a lot of guests on our podcast. Um, and what we want to do is we want to bring hope to people to let them know that God is not done with their story. And as you can see, hope is is a reoccurring theme in my life, you know, hoping for a better tomorrow, hoping for a future, hoping, which are all promises that God gave us in the Bible. But, you know, a lot of it, I when I didn't have hope, I had to look at other people who were a little bit ahead of me in their lives, and they gave me hope that things were going to be better. So we like to have guests on our podcast where we share our stories of their Damascus moment, encouraging other people to keep going on their journey because God's not done with it yet. As you've mentioned, the healing continues, but you've gone through a large chunk of the healing that was required to bring you to where you are now. If you had the opportunity to reach back to that five-year-old, seven-year-old girl that you were all those years ago, what would you say to her? I would tell her to keep dreaming, to keep dreaming, because there's going to be a point in your life where your dreams are going to come true, and they're not going to be anything that you imagine they're going to be, because they're going to be so much better than you could ever imagine. Yeah, five years old, you dream of things you're going to be. And I never knew I wanted to be a mom and I never knew I wanted to be a wife and I never knew I wanted to help people. But keep dreaming and keep hoping because it does get better because God has not even started your story yet. And to the person who's listening at the moment thinking, this sounds wonderful that Yvonne's been able to make this big change, but I'm too far gone. I can't see any way back from where I am. What would you say to that person? I would tell that person that that's not true. God will go anywhere to find you. Sometimes we need to sit still so he can find you. And sometimes he doesn't mind running you down to get you. And so anybody who's listening to this and they're like, yeah, I can't forgive. I can't. It's not about them. It's about you and who you are and who you were created to be. So there is no way that God wants you to stay where you are. So have hope that he wants so much more for you. I love the fact that your story is not yet over, that it's going to continue to unfold and that we get to be part of it too through things like Damascus Experience and definitely through the podcast. And we will put links to both those websites on the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net so that people can contact you. What is the easiest way for people to find you? They can just jump on our Instagram, Damascus Experience, or our, on our podcast Instagram, On the Road to Damascus, and you can find us there. If you drop a comment, we'll definitely respond to you. Yvonne, it's been wonderful hearing your story, to hear how far you've come from where you've been. And as I say, I know that the story is not over yet, and we look forward to hearing a lot more from you in the future, but thank you so much for spending some time on Bleeding Daylight. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.